Welcome to episode one of the Peaks and Pines podcast. I'm your host, Dane Oakley, here with my co-host, Randy Eisler. How are you, man? Doing pretty good. Excited to get this podcast started. Yeah, man. It's going to be good. I'm excited. Okay, but before we get too into it, I'm going to go over kind of what everyone can expect from our coming episodes, kind of the layout we're going to use. So in the beginning of the episodes, we're going to talk about uh, events and competitions and kind of just recap them from what just previously happened. So the sports we'll be recapping for now will be uh, snowboarding, skiing, mountain biking, surfing, skateboarding, kind of a lot more, kind of depending on what the season is too. Um, but we're going to try and stay away from motorsports, mostly like motocross and a few other ones kind of like that, just so, I don't know, that's just a whole other spectrum of sports that we don't really have the time to get into, but if the podcast takes off, we will get into them. Personally, I'm looking forward to that, but that's once again, if, if it happens. Once, yeah, once that's we get up there. to the listeners. Once we get there. But then after we talk about the recapping and get into the competitions, we're going to play the interview of our special guest. And our guests will range from pro athletes like Taylor Jensen, the three-time world longboard champion, to people in the film or photography industry, kind of like our buddy that's going to be on today, Mike Hopkins, who's a professional mountain bike director. And then we're also going to have a couple other people from the outdoor community, like the van life people, and just kind of anyone that has a good story and kind of goes with the theme we're going with here. And then to end each episode, we're going to talk about news involving brands, uh, locations like resorts and just kind of everything that we feel is relevant for you guys to keep up to date. But yeah, now that we got that out of the way, let's uh, get started. Yeah, sounds good. Uh, start off, I guess we had the Mercedes-Benz UCI World Cup in Maribor last weekend. Yeah, great event. A lot of stuff going on. Let's get started with the um, a men's elite race one. So what we can get started off with there was in the qualifying round, we saw Reese Wilson, the young Scottish racer. He had a great qualifying, finished three seconds ahead of everyone else. Was just having a great start to the weekend overall. But sadly, on the day of race one, which was the Friday of last week, uh, he had a nasty spill over a berm, wiped out pretty hard. We don't know all the details about what's injured on him, but we know it wasn't good that he had to cancel the rest of the weekend. So it's kind of a shame not seeing him compete, but we hope he gets better soon and we can see him hopefully in the next event coming up here pretty soon. It's pretty sad, honestly. Uh, he actually, right after the, after the qualifying, he did an interview where he had said that he was looking forward to the race no matter what. He was just wanting to ride his bike because uh, lots of guys, when the weather gets kind of crappy like it was, they're a little bit more uh they don't want to ride their bike as much or don't want to push it as hard but he is all about that and it was cool to send yeah exactly exactly yeah i mean yeah like you said the conditions for the first race were pretty terrible pretty muddy day everyone had trouble the men the women just wasn't a good all-around racing condition pretty slippery routes rocks Mm -hmm. and it's not an easy course by itself to get down so conditions definitely have a big factor but uh, one person that had a really good set in the first race was uh, the 38-year-old Greg Menar. Set the pace in race one and was looking for his 22nd career World Cup victory since 1998 when he joined into this league. But then we saw the master of the mud, as everyone calls him, Remy Tyrion. He beat the South African Menar by a whole 2.2 seconds. He was just flying down that track and took a very risky line down the track as well but very aggressive approach oh yeah he was a monster going down there 
But then after that, we saw both uh, Deprella and Walker have some very costly slip-ups in the very first turn where a lot of people had their troubles. But they both got their footing after that and had a respectable third and fourth place uh, finishes, sending Menard down to fifth. But at the end of the day, it was Loris Vergier who would win the day and get race one victory, just with an outstanding track, just flying through the rocks. And yeah, he set the pace by almost three seconds. Not quite three, but he was right close to it. Whereas fin the final results for the first race were Vergier with a 3.79, uh, Tyrion with a 3.10.5, Deprella with a 3.10.9, and Walker with a 312.009, and then Menar coming in fifth with three minutes, 12.8 seconds. Yeah, I guess I'll uh, go into the women's elite race. Uh, same as the men's race one, I should say. Same as the men's race one, uh, there was multiple slip-ups on that early corner. Uh, actually, Hoffman had a potential podium. She had an amazing pace throughout the whole, the whole race, but right at the very beginning, she actually lost the bike from under her. Uh, in the end of the day, she still ended up finishing sixth, though, so that's pretty impressive. Uh, then we also actually had uh, another pretty nasty wipeout. Millie Johnson, uh, when she was coming down out of the rock garden, she ended up flipping over the handlebars, but uh, actually, once she got down, she quickly jumped back up and actually finished the race as well. Yeah, if you watch the race, you can see her go down the key part and just... Near the top of where the hill drops is where she falls off the bike, and she probably goes down five or so feet and is face first in the rocks, but she bounced right back up. So yeah, kudos was, to her for getting right up and actually finishing her lap time. And still good. finishing in a respectable place, too. Yes, definitely. It was a pretty brutal fall. Um, next, we had uh, Rasnik, who, once again, good momentum. Wasn't amazing first sector, but... Uh, she was. She had good, good momentum going through the whole thing. Then right at the fourth sector mark, uh, her front wheel slipped out again, just at root. And uh, once again, with a quick recovery, she was able to finish fifth overall. So great time, even though she had actually fell off her bike there as well. Uh, next, we had Tony Seagrave. She was actually the fourth rider down. She finished 13 seconds ahead of the previous three riders, which is an amazing lead and while she was going down there's also they had the big double jump about the midway course of the track and she was one of only three women to hit that jump mm -hmm. and actually try to make the land and she landed kind of right on the slope landed on mostly her front tire had a bit of a fall almost but she had a great recovery and just kept on going yeah she cased the jump so yeah her her, her back end was actually behind the lip of the landing so uh yeah it threw the back end up as she was coming down when they were nice scary. endo and then somehow got back together. She really got that back to the quick and didn't even hesitate and just kept on going. Yeah, it was very impressive. So yeah, her run, she actually, after doing that, she ran 13 seconds faster than the previous riders. And then the next run after her was Cabarro, who in the end did end up winning, but her run was 13 seconds faster than Seagraves. So you see that back-to-back, 13-second -back, lead, and then another 13-second lead on top of that is just insane. Just ludicrous time changes. Yes. So, yeah, Cabarro kept that large lead up. Uh, I think that she kept it – it was nearly 13 seconds through the whole thing up until the final two riders. 
the uh, second last rider, Miriam Nicole, came in only six seconds behind Cabarro. And then the final rider, Tracy Hanna, was only one second slower than Nicole, so seven seconds behind Cabarro. Still a big lead, but uh, those last two riders definitely, definitely did scare her compared to the rest of the pack there. So uh, the final results for that uh, race one of women's was 343.6 for Cabarro. Uh, Nicole was 349.7. Hannah was 350.8. Farina was 353.5. And Rasnik was 355.1. Then we get into the women's elite race two, which was the Sunday races where we saw Marine Cabarro set an amazing time to beat of 340.5, almost seven seconds faster again than the previous time. But it didn't take long for Nina Hoffman, who had the rough slip up on the Friday, but she got her footing back. It was a dry day, and she just took a super aggressive take on the track, took a really risky uh, line down, and she would eventually pass Cabro and take away Cabro's fifth straight World Cup win and beat her by uh, 1.899 seconds. So Cabro was that close to getting her fifth straight win, but... Nina Hoffman really wanted her first, and she went and got it. But uh, it wasn't just super easy for Hoffman. There were still a few other races to go, like uh, Miriam Nicole, who was the fastest in, I think, every way in the qualifiers, and was the last to have a chance at beating Hoffman. She was tearing it up till she had one little slip about halfway through the track, and that put her out of contention, giving Nina Hoffman her first victory in the World Cup. And, uh, yeah, the results for that one were Hoffman with a 338.6, uh, Cabarro with a 340.5, Farina with a 342.8, uh, Nicole with a 344.6, Hannah with a 347.4. So we got to see Cabarro finish first and second this week, setting off just a great weekend for her. Still awesome to get two podiums in the weekend, and uh, with it being a shorter championship this year because of COVID and everything, that's still awesome numbers. I'm sure we'll see a lot more of her too. Most definitely. Uh, so I guess next we'll go into the men's league race too. Uh, here, actually, I'm going to start off with a bit of a lesser known one. Luper Bergink. So Luca. Luca. Bergink. Bergink. He knows his name. Spit it out. Yeah. Uh, he actually had a pretty noteworthy ending there. He took the final jump of the course, which, which the landing just rides right into the finish. He took that up, landed on his front wheel, riding an endo until he finally flipped over his handlebars while crossing the finish line. It was a pretty sketchy finish, but uh, definitely theatrical. I would definitely say. the most stylish finish. Yes. Like, I don't think we've seen anyone go from endo to over the handlebars and then roll past the finish line, and it still count that as him passing the line. It was actually kind of beautiful. It looked actually somewhat graceful but uh and he summarized it perfectly saying that this was 2020 in a nutshell <laughs> yes that is uh pretty accurate but he still got 31st and for a guy that's not technically a pro like some of these guys are like your vergiers or your brunies but yeah i mean he still finished 31st so still definitely a respectable finish for him most definitely better than uh better than i could ever do well, yeah. i'm sure we definitely hope to see him <laughs> again too yes that would be awesome uh, and then I've got to mention Minar as well. Once again, I think he's a month away from being 39. So older guy in, in this scene, 
definitely it's awesome to see him once again huge huge numbers in uh championships in the past as well and still keeping up a good pace uh a bit over halfway through was his run halfway through the day was his run and uh he set the time to beat at that point when in the end he he came in ninth place only 2.1 seconds behind the leader so once again that's pretty impressive as a as a collective yes most definitely and it was a pretty tight race so ninth place is not far off only 2.1 seconds behind yeah before we get into the finals there we want to do a quick shout out to the canadian boy the finn isles he had what everyone was saying was just a perfect top half of the race went flying through the rocks and just speed the whole way through Mm -hmm. finished fourth overall and he just he's a young kid he's only 20 years old or i think he's just 21 now but i mean he's really showing a name for himself as everyone knows or maybe not everyone knows but i think it was when he was 14 he went to the whistler competition and they weren't going to let him race in the in the uh, crankworks but he somehow lobbied him to get himself in there and he ended up winning the whole competition. So, I mean, he's given himself quite a name already and he's just going to keep on getting better from what we can see. Yes. He has done actually amazing even in these races as well. So big congrats to our fellow Canuck. So yes, leading into that, our, our final run was actually pretty exciting. Uh, Vergier had already set a ridiculous time and uh, Loic Bruni was the last one to ride. So from the start, uh, Loic actually had a faster uh, time in the first sector. And then the second sector, Vergier's time was just a tiny bit faster again, less than half a second. Third sector, Vergier was still just about half a second faster. And then the fourth sector, Bruni was once again, half a second faster than Vergier this time. So it was a battle through the whole thing. In the end, Bruni crossed the finish line, looked back, and saw that he was less than two hundredths of a second behind Vergier. Kind of heartbreaking, but uh, that last run kind of kept you on the edge of your seat there. Yeah, I went right down the finish line there. It was a good, good hustle from both guys, but Bruni still put in a great time. Didn't quite get the win, giving Vergier two wins this weekend. I mean, he's clearly one of the best, but that really solidified his name this weekend and just, yeah possible to miss that he won two days in a row yeah like i said it was a very close it was a very close race uh, especially on that race two there uh our top five here i have the times they're so close that i'm going to go into the thousands of a second because it's just ridiculous uh vergier with a 307.771 bruni with a 307.828 walker with a three three eight oh eight point one seven four Isles with a three oh eight seven two two and Brazen with a three oh eight point seven eight seven. So yeah once again top five one second difference in the top five so that's so close. Yeah no that was ridiculous. So we're gonna stop with the mountain biking for now. We're kind of in a strange season here where all the summer sports are starting to end and we're kind of slowly transitioning into the winter sports. But we did still have the uh, some winter sports starting already, which was the Audi FIS Alpine World Cup, where we saw the young superstar Lucas Brathen achieve his first World Cup victory. The 20-year-old Norwegian beat Marco Odermatt by a margin of just 0.06 of a second. 
So yeah, huge congratulations to the young gun. He, and yeah, we can't wait to see more of him and Marco in the coming season placing first and second so far in their league. But yeah, I'm sure we have a lot more to hear for both those names. Another type, another close one where it's in the hundreds of a second that you're having to, me- having to measure that. That's just insane competition. Yeah. And then the real story of the Audi World Cup, however, was actually Marta Bessino and her uh, teammate Fed- Federica Brignone, I think. Sorry if we butcher names. We're not that great at it. And we'll do better, I'm sure, at some point. I'm fairly uncultured. Yeah. But... The reason that they were kind of the talk of the town was uh, Bassino won her second World Cup victory, but she beat her teammate. And uh, Brignone was actually last year's World Cup champion over the whole year. So I'm sure that's a big accomplishment for her. I'm sure her teammate was actually pretty happy for her. She only beat her by 0.14 of a second to get that title. That's actually, in this one, this is the first time two Italian skiers have placed first and second and sold him. So that's actually a pretty cool uh, circumstance as well. Yeah, I'm sure Italy's happy with that turnout as well. Most definitely. And then for another summer sport, we got the World Surf League. They had the uh, Longboard Pro event in Spino, and that was on October 11th, so a little bit far back, but we still want to talk about it because we saw the king of European surfing, uh, Edouard Del Perro. He beat uh, Benoit Carpentier, the two French guys. They went at it. They both had high points going through each heat. They both averaged over eight points per round. And the finals, the fan votes, it was pretty obvious that it was going to be kind of a bias towards uh, Del Perro, but the fan votes were 100% in Del Perro's favor as he was the three-time winner in the last three years of uh, Espino. And, of course, Carpentier is still a very talented rider, just a lot younger. He... uh, even he said in the interview later that he was just happy competing as the champ. And yeah, you can't really blame him. I'm sure he had a great time. I think the last three years he's competed here in Espino, he uh, finished in the semifinals, never quite making it, but to make it that far and then to go against the undisputed king of European surfing, it's a pretty big honor for him. Yeah, it's an awesome experience for sure. And then on the women's side, it was kind of a lackluster finals. The waves just weren't coming in. There was just not a whole lot going on for them, but they made the most of what they had. And then we ended up seeing uh, Alice Lemoy beat the up-and-comer Zoe Grospiron in the Wave Star Finals for the women's uh, yeah, event in Espino. But uh, yeah, so some upcoming events that we kind of felt like people should know about is coming up on October 30th to November 1st. We're going back with the Mercedes-Benz UCI Downhill World uh, Championships. In uh, Lauza, Portugal. So we can all be excited to watch that one. As we know, Lauza, it's going to be a virgin track for most of these riders. It's not hasn't been on the tour before. So this will be the first time most of the North American riders are going to be on it. We know a lot of the European riders use it as a test track in their off-season. So there's going to be some advantage for some of the riders, but we'll get more into that next episode. And then on October 31st, we have the Madrid Snow Zone Slope Style for snowboarding so you can catch that one i'm sure on red bull tv or wherever you watch you're going to see a lot of the half pipes you're going to see a lot of the slope styles you're going to see everything you want to see in snowboarding without further ado how about we turn the mic over to our good buddy mike hopkins
So today we have a man who is known as a professional in many ways, some being a professional mountain biker, skier, director, producer. This man is Mike Hopkins. How are you, Mike? That is a hell of an introduction. <laughs> I will say that. You know, so I was thinking it would be pretty chill here, but then an inter inter intro like that, I really got to live up to something here. So really setting you on a pedestal here. Yeah, the pressure's on, buddy. Yeah, how you doing? <laughs> good, man. Good. 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 Um, so yeah, how's, uh, where you been cooped up here for quarantine? Well, where have I been? Well, it started in New Zealand. We were down, uh, like, uh, I was down there with my girlfriend and our daughter and we were doing some, I was doing some filming down there and they traveled with me. So the plan was to spend three months down there, uh, working on a project. And on day four, I, uh, broke my ribs, which is, uh, mildly counterproductive to, uh, working and breathing yeah. and biking so it turned into uh, an extended vacation because when we tried to fly home we went through it was kind of like when covid was really just kicking off and yeah. uh you know borders were shutting and everything else and so when that's when that started happening i mean everybody knows what traveling internationally was like at that point it was a it was a bit of a chaotic disaster so we uh spent a few extra weeks in new zealand at my buddy player's place just i don't know in quarantine yeah <laughs> and stuck it was like a glorified vacation man it was so sweet we were, uh, that's probably the yeah, best scenario yeah yeah i mean in terms of like new zealand as well new zealand's like such a beautiful and outrageously amazing country that it was a uh, made it pretty easy to you know yeah just settle in and uh yeah so anyway but we were stuck down there for a bit and uh you know after i think it was 16 canceled flights and you know, showing up at the airport, like bags fully packed and our daughters too. Uh, so we're like getting her prepped and ready to fly is always like a thing. And you're like, all right, sweet. So you show up at the airport and got all the bags packed, all the bikes packed, you're like ready to go. And then, you know, you go to check in. They're like, oh yeah, that, that flight doesn't exist anymore. You're like, perfect. Cool. Re-rent the car back to Blair's house, hanging out for like another week and then trying it all over again and over and over and over again. <laughs> it just became like a natural routine. But yeah. Uh, yeah, when we did finally get home, it was, I don't know, it's pretty good. Like we live in a tiny little mountain town in Southern BC. Called yeah, it makes Rossland. it pretty easy to get out, go yeah. into views while everyone's locked up. Yeah, totally. I mean, Rossland's this, I mean, there's a reason we live here. It's, I think, got a population of like 3,500 people. It's got a incredible ski resort like that it tucks up against and yeah it's kind of like this hidden gem in bc and crazy crazy good biking as well so yeah, yeah it's very much an outdoor community so after our two week mandatory quarantine was over we were pretty much i don't know living in our own little bubble where nothing really seemed to change all that much other than the fact that people were wearing masks and certain stores weren't, weren't open but other than that it was like business as usual which is pretty crazy so yeah Seems yeah like a pretty good quarantine so far then yeah, yeah, it was definitely felt super fortunate, especially when you're watching, like you're knowing, you're looking at the news and you're reading what you're reading and seeing that basically the whole world is, yeah, being brought to its knees in one way, shape, or form. And yeah, so, for sure. Yeah, so feeling pretty fortunate and, you know, cooped up in Rossum, British Columbia in general is not a bad place to be. Yeah, no kidding. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah. Um, yeah. Well, first question I'm going to ask you is what, uh, what kind of got you into the whole athlete, mountain biking, skiing, being professional and all of them scene? 
Yeah, it's kind of a that's a big one, but um, <laughs> I, I'll give you. I try to. I try to give you the. I try to give the uh, quick and dirty story. Um, so I think I think Roslyn has a lot to do with it. Like growing up here, uh, it's very much an outdoor driven community. So you know, growing up as a kid, I was like sweet. It's like you biked and you skied. And that was it biked skied and went to school that was pretty much it it's like that's that was your world you know and chase girls whenever you could and uh it it kind of when you grow up like that it definitely ingrains in you that you're like oh like maybe one day i could make something happen you watch enough movies and you see see people on you know you go to premieres and stuff and you're like oh sweet like you know shane mcconkey and seth morrison and you know mike douglas and all those guys you're like oh god i'd be really rad to do that one day and uh obviously you know i kind of went through the motions of like oh that'd be really really awesome to make something like that happen and kind of put it on the back burner and told myself I'm like nah i got my mom was like you should probably go to school so when i finished high school i went to university where i did far more skiing than i did going to school and it was like one of those things too where you're like i you know, you work your summer jobs and you save all your money so you can pay for school. And then, then I was going to school and I just wasn't going to school. I went to yeah. Calgary, University of Calgary, and I spent way more time bouncing around ski resorts and trying to like weasel my way, hiking up and down parks and hitting handrails and doing everything but school, just getting schooled by life. And, yeah. uh, and then, uh, yeah, I got told that I kind of just made a choice in the second year there. I made a deal with my my mom because she was like pretty pro school that yeah i was gonna take the winter off i was gonna give this ski thing a crack because i knew i was like pretty decent and if it didn't work out i'd go back to school and if it did then i'd just kind of like see where it went and so, you've never seen school again yeah well i was <laughs> pretty much that man i was um i had in my head as you do when you're like 18 and or 19 you're like, oh yeah, I'm just gonna ski under the chair all the time. Someone's gonna see me and just be like, cool. It's like, who's that? All the kid? scouts on the chairs. Yeah, exactly, right? And just like this totally jaded view of the world or this like limited view of it. But uh, one day I was skiing and with my brother and we, yeah, man, doing, doing what we do, skiing under the chair, just doing tricks and whatever, flips and doing, having all sorts of fun. And then I uh, got to the, uh, got to the bottom that day and was waiting to get picked up by a friend and this guy rocked up to me and tapped me on the shoulder and he handed me his card and he was from Rosignal and he's like uh he's like hey I saw you skiing today my name's Mike and I'd like to talk to you about maybe you riding for us and I was like what <laughs> I was like yo it actually worked <laughs> I was like I was pretty blown away and I had been kind of waiting for I'd been pretty you know I'd been put in some work because when I told myself I was going to drop out of school I was like all right if I'm going to do that then I got to make sure that if an opportunity comes along like this came along that I'd be kind of prepped and ready for it so I had friends yeah. film me and whatnot so I had promo so this is like back in the day of like CDs so yeah. I had a DVD that I had like my promo DVD and so I called up my mom and I was like mom can you run up my promo DVD I'm, I'm here with a guy from Rosignol and he wants to like he wants to talk or whatever and she was like, yeah, sure. So she ran it up and then I gave it to Mike, who's the guy. And he, you know, we talked the next week and he's like, yeah, let's sign you up. And I was like, what? And I was like, no way. And then from that <laughs> point on, it just kind of snowballed and he kind of took me under his wing and put me in a, you know, 
kind of helped me navigate a little bit in terms of like would be like hey there's this contest happening here we'd like to send you here here yeah. and the next thing you knew i was like bouncing around europe and i was like going to all these you know like the red bull cold rushes and i was kind of things were taken off and i was like man i'm actually like wow i'm making money as a skier like this is incredible and yeah that was uh that was pretty wild and yeah yeah i mean that was yeah, definitely that was not a like, definitely not a bad deal to have Rosignol just be the first one to come to you too no 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 it was definitely it was a pretty ideal situation for sure not some rinky dink calgary home-based small brand yeah 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 so that was uh felt pretty fortunate there and then you know as as things progress i think goals kind of your goals and what you want to do like as an individual or as an athlete um i had always been big into mountain biking and i was also involved in the ski scene when it was pretty like I come from a, you know, I come from a pretty small town. And so navigating that world of like pro skiing when you're thrown in with all these like super, you know, strong characters, I'll say. Yeah. And you're kind of like this, but like, you're like, whoa. And it's a bit of a sink or swim thing. And I just like, didn't know how to handle it. And I didn't have any mentors either. Like I didn't have anybody I could like lean on to be like, help me through things or coach, coach me through things or even shed a bit of light on like oh yeah we all go through this it was just kind of like me on my own which yeah all up to you to train yourself yeah which was which is fine like i didn't mind like the training part or like the the skiing part because it was just felt like i was just skiing right but it was more like the navigating the business navigating like at comps i was just kind of like oh man like i mean uh, like i made some friends and stuff but for the most part i was like man there's like too many egos in this room for me kind of thing it was like really almost like I, I think over-processed it. And then I, I basically pushed kind of like started pulling back a bit instead of like pushing. And I was like, uh, I don't know if like, this scenes for me, or I don't know if this like sports for me. And uh, I'd always been super into mountain biking. So I kind of was like starting to do more and more mountain biking. And then I met Derek Frankowski, who's yeah. like, who's for people who don't know, he's, he's, started as a photographer and became this very, you know, award-winning photographer, this like kind of this, I don't know. A legend in the outdoor photography scene. Yeah. 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 It's weird. Cause he's my buddy. So it's like calling your buddy a legend, yeah. he's a legend <laughs> for sure. I'll say it for <laughs> and, you. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and he kind of took me under his wing and that was kind of like the first kind of mentor I had in any sort of sports scene. And he helped me navigate, I would say the first couple first couple of years of my bike career because it spawned with him once we met we went on our first shoot and out of that first shoot i think we got a cover of bike mag and then things just kind of snowballed from there and i picked up a bunch of sponsors on the backside of that and then things just kind of clicked like the timing was perfect and the industry yeah. was taken off and people were looking for like new up-and-coming kids and i was just so happy to be this new talent and and then rosignol capitalized and they were like oh we're gonna start making bike clothing so i had this like crossover sponsorship <laughs> where i was like skiing and biking and traveling like like a madman throughout the year and it just kind of yeah that's how like my i'd say my professional career kicked off and it just kind of things were just rolling man and yeah, that's super cool that's like yeah. perfect place perfect time with just the right people really not to mention yeah. your work ethic definitely helped carry that all the way through yeah i think like having having Derek there definitely was not only a mentor in the industry, but also just in a creative outlook. And yeah. so, 
you, I saw that how much of a perfectionist he was and like his standards were super high. So naturally that, you know, that I carried, I was like a sponge. I just like soaked up all that. Yeah. And yeah, it was, it was great, man. And then we made life cycles together and you know, I, it was cool. I just, from the get go, I was never a competition guy. I was, I competed in a couple crank works because I thought it would be something fun yeah. for me. And it wasn't like, it wasn't fun for me. <laughs> like it was like so stressful and I'm sure it is for everybody, but I just don't have a good, I've never been, I've never had a good race head, like in terms of like racing or any of those kind of competitions, just yeah. competition in general. I didn't have the mentality for it. I like get too stressed out and I'm too in my own head. And then well, that's a whole nother level of competitiveness for sure. Yeah. And it's just not, I didn't really gravitate towards that energy. I didn't yeah. really gravitate towards like that kind of style of riding. I was like this creative out having a creative outlook and be able to craft things and actually show your perspective in a sport where that you, how it, how it is in your head. Yeah. Like that's a direct representation of how it is in your head. So um, I always thought that was really interesting. So from the get go, I was just like the only competition I ever did was rampage. And I kind of made a, that choice early on in my career that I was going to put um, kind of all my eggs in the one basket in terms of like going this creative route and was focusing on photos and film and then yeah. would do rampage at the end of the year. And you'd say that uh, your friend Derek, there's one that got you into the whole directing, producing kind of side um, of your life. Yeah, he, he, I mean, he definitely helped. Like he started, like, that's what really, I'd say solidified my interest early yeah. on. And then he, after we finished life cycles, he kind of backed away from the industry and he, he kind of tapped out for a couple of years and started focusing on other things, which was great for him. Cause now, I mean, now he's filming, he, he was filming on Planner too. He's doing yeah. a bunch of uh, BBC stuff and Netflix stuff and he's yeah, got this cool. whole nature. Yeah. He's got this whole nature thing going on and he's, I mean, he's always been hyper talented, but just, yeah, he's, he's definitely, I don't know. Yeah, he's a legend. All right. Whatever. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, so yeah, I'd say initially him and Ryan Gibb, like Ryan Gibb made, it was his partner on Life Cycles and those yeah. guys. And Ryan's gone a, a bit of a different route, but he's a, he's a commercial director and like a super well-accomplished commercial director. Yeah. And um, just learning from those two guys and then kind of taking that and moving forward. But yeah, those were the guys that definitely, I would say started the ball rolling. Yeah, and they kind of tapped out, and it was, I was kind of on my own again. But it was much more confident, knew knew my place, knew my direction, knew yeah. what I wanted to do. So, it took a little while to like really, you know, I would say really come down to a point where I was like, oh yeah, this is for me, and kind of make my own little niche in the sport. So yeah, oh, that's but, super cool. Yeah. But uh, like, so what was? Do you remember your first uh, video that you produced or directed? No. On a near professional scale? Uh, I mean, well, it's like with, with the way I chose to approach like professional sport was I wasn't leaning on results. So I had to produce videos. And so it wasn't, I was never me. So I learned pretty early on like the business of marketing because I would approach sponsors. I was like, well, I can't, I can't afford to hire these filmers on my own or the guys I want to work with. So I need to give them something. So instead of me paying out of pocket out of my salary or retainer that I earned from sponsors, yeah. I'm just going to start approaching my sponsors and be like, Hey, we're going to do a commercial for you. And then it's just kind of like, you, you know, that's like the common sense way to do it. So I just started approaching sponsors. I'm like, who I would talk to them at the beginning of the year, 
I would ask them what they were looking for, what their brand direction was, and then I would create something that fit into that. And yeah. then I started doing that from a pretty early age. And for the most part, it was like at the beginning, I mean, I was young and I was just like, sweet, you guys just want to shred it. It's done. No problem. <laughs> I could do that. I just want me. So I would get, they would give me money and I would hire filmers and hire photographers and we go yeah. out and film and then I'd hand them a finished product. And that was a, like pretty much how it was from day one. Like right. very few companies come to me and came to me early on and we're like, Hey, we need you at this shoot. It was usually me going out and hustling to make a shoot happen. Yeah. Cause then you could kind of also dictate what that looked like to a certain degree and how that was Have some control over the finished product totally. for sure. Yeah. yeah. And so that was, that I found it pretty interesting. Um, but yeah, I, like I'll be the first one to say it's like, I was, yeah, I was a talented writer, but by no means was I like the best, you know? Yeah. Like I was never, like I was never Brandon or Brett or um, like any of those guys where it's like the upper echelon. I was, yeah. I was more of like this creative space where I get, then again, I wasn't really competing against those guys or trying to hang with those guys. It was much more kind of had to hustle and make my own way. So I was, I felt like I was taking a path that not too many people had taken. Um, yeah. That just, you kind of just learn it, taking it or learning it as you go. Yeah, so sure. it was pretty sweet. Yeah. Oh, so cool. it was a, a whole different kind of story, not just getting the sponsors and just being the best right off the bat. You're kind of working your way up to getting your own sponsors and working your way through the filmmaking and your skill. Yeah, and totally. It's like you're, you're kind of learning all the different aspects of what it takes to put something like that together. And then yeah. when it came down to like actually pulling off a bigger production, I would say a lot of things were kind of leading to the first dream ride where you know i had like i just signed with diamondback bikes and it was I, I believe it was my second year with them and i had the chief marketing officer of a few different brands because they're owned by like a um, corporation so so the chief marketing officer came to me and he was like hey like we need something like big and then uh lacy kemp who was the team manager at the time i had this idea of like pairing like a, some sort of like some sort of film with a Dr. Zeus inspired narrative. Originally yeah. they wanted to use, Oh, the places you'll go and build a bike film around that. Um, and then it came down to like licensing that would have been outrageous for sure. What boiled down to Lacey writing a poem. And uh, she's like, I have this poem and I read it. And Steve, the guy at the time, the guy, the Diamondback guy, he's like, Oh, this is great. And he's like, I'm going to give you this much money. I'm going to give you three pieces of advice. It's like, bring me back something that's on time that speaks to the brand and that's, and make sure it's on time. And he's like, those are the only three pieces of direction <laughs> he gave. He's like, do whatever you want. Here's the money. And I was like, Whoa. And it was definitely like a substantially bigger budget than I had originally worked with or ever worked with. And I remember just being like, having a conversation. I was just like, yeah, yeah, no, totally. I can, you know what? I do this kind of stuff all the time. No big deal. Like we totally got this. Like we're going <laughs> to bring you back like the most badass thing. And uh, he's like, okay, great. He's like, we'll have the confidence. See you in September or whatever it was or March or something like that. I was like, yeah, yeah cool. And as soon as he left, I was like, whoa, how are we going to pull this off? I was like, oh my God. <laughs> like, <laughs> I was like, damn. 
Um, but that's, that's kind of, there's a beauty in that too, right? Cause you get backed into a corner and you kind of sink or swim, but yeah. this was definitely one of those situations where I was like, yeah, it's going to be super hard, but it's going to be awesome. And then slowly, you know, you build the team and as you build the team, the plans kind of start to formulate and then you start really like, yeah, diving into the production of it and like producing it in terms of like, okay, nailing down the locations and nailing down how that's going to pertain to the script and, um, you know, who, how we're going to shoot it and all that stuff. And so, yeah. Yeah. And, this and, is actually like one of the videos I wanted to focus on mostly was I watched the dream ride video a few times and super cool video for anyone that is listening. It's just a few minutes long, so you have no reason not to watch it. But just like the film work is outstanding. The locations are great. And I was going to ask, like, do you remember where you did the shooting? Like all the locations you went to? Yeah, I mean, like we, that one film, like we were on the road for three weeks. Um, we had, I was riding with Bruno Long in his truck, and Bruno's a photographer. And then uh, Ryan Gibb and Scott Secco, who were the other two filmers, were in a minivan. That we drove nearly 7,000 kilometers um, <laughs> throughout the US and Canada and bounced to, we had this hit list, um, kind of built this hit list of really strange and otherworldly locations. And yeah, just Google mapped it and we're like, all right, cool. We're driving like 7,000 kilometers, here we go. <laughs> and we would just connect these, basically connect the dots of all the research spots we'd done. And um, yeah, it just turned into this kind of, epic road trip and uh believe me by the end of three weeks of traveling with your buddies you're like all right guys i think everybody everybody's on a level we're all like super exhausted <laughs> stink like i think we're good for like a couple months off from each other for yeah we basically lived in the same you know hotel room and it was like you know the budgets weren't huge like the budgets were very much like standard i think and mountain bike but it was def the way i viewed it was it was more it was more than i'd ever worked with and so i just hired the guys i knew i had my friends who i knew had very much the same creative outlook as i did and would put everything into it and we were like shattered by the end like all of us were just <laughs> beat down tired and we worked like we worked our asses off and it was great and then i mean long story short when the thing released it kind of did amazing things for Diamondback. It kind of blew up. It won a bunch of awards. It yeah. traveled around like globally on a number of different film festival circuits. It it bounced like it was just all over the globe. It was pretty cool to see yeah. that happen. And then that um, kind of the success of that, the first one, they came to us and were like, "Okay, sweet, make another one." It it definitely solidified, I would say, myself as an athlete with Diamondback, but also gave me the creative uh, freedom. They were like, "Okay." let Mike do whatever he wants. Yeah. They had full trust in you after you. Yeah. Like, and, and for that to happen, like not a lot of companies for like, not that doesn't happen a lot in the industry Yeah, where like quite literally zero guidance. They're like, do whatever you want. Here's the money, do whatever you want. Here's the deadline. And that was it. I was like, okay. So I'd take it. And you know, for number two and number three, I'd find all the locations. I'd hire the team. You'd like, basically plan the route, book all the stuff. I was putting everything on my credit card. It was just like, yeah. it, it was pretty nuts. It was, yeah, it was, it was good times, but we got to see some like really amazing spots and, you know, tell these kind of cool visual stories. And that was, that was my first, I think, introduction into any sort of narrative film work where I felt like I was, I'm like, oh, okay, this, this has got legs. Like this could be a lot of fun, you know, spawn, spawn something different. And also at the same time, it, 
it made, you know, helped me from not only a creative standpoint, but also from, you know, a athletic standpoint in terms of my salaries and my contracts and stuff went up because people were like, oh, it was like a good evolution of the goal. It's like kind of like you start learning, learning, learning. You're constantly like learning. And that was like a, the right step. And kind of like a pinnacle moment almost in all the practice yeah. and all that stuff. Yeah, for sure. I think it was cool to see it kind of build to something that was going on beyond the bike industry because yeah. it was definitely like that was the goal. Like my kind of goal coming from a ski background was just to appeal to the outdoor community as much as possible. And sure. so that it felt like I'd finally kind of found my voice a bit, especially with like when we wrapped up the series with Dream Ride 3, I was like, cool, like that's a pretty sweet trilogy. And you can kind of look back on it and be like, all right, sweet. Like that's like, we went to some pretty crazy places and did some crazy things. And my, my girlfriend keeps on telling me, she's like, you have to make it behind the scenes because we had a behind the scenes filmer follow us around New Zealand. Quite dove into the footage yet, but I'm telling like we went to, it was nuts. Like so many crazy situations evolved from these things. Like <laughs> everything for being stuck in like 110 kilometer like in our windstorms to or sandstorms to uh sleeping on active volcanoes like white island which you know had a tragedy tragedy like i think it was last year where it killed 28 27 people in new zealand so a safe place to sleep for sure yeah it was it, like we had a lot of yeah a lot of really <laughs> crazy crazy uh scenarios unfold like everything from these cool in in the in Dream Ride Three, there's these cool rock formations. These really crazy, um, almost look like something out of well, something out of Lord of the Rings, obviously, because Lord yeah. of the Rings is shot in New Zealand. But uh, it's where a glacier basically a glacier died, and so as as it melts, it erodes these rocks, but weaves these really cool rock channels and big rock formations, and they look like an ogre pottery class gone wrong. Like it looks <laughs> like something was just totally. Um, it was very otherworldly and very Dr. Zeus-esque. And I remember I had seen these um, on previous trips to New Zealand. And I was like, oh, I got to figure this out. So the original place I was, I was looking at is like a national, it's under like a natural, national trust. So it's protected. And yeah. so I talked to like the Iwi tribe of New Zealand, a couple other people to see if we'd get access to it. And it just wasn't an option. And yeah. then I found out across the street, it's, there's a very similar landscape that's owned by this private guy. And I called up the station, like the, um, basically the farm. And it's like, Hey, like, my name's Mike. Like, just wondering, is there, is it a possibility to shoot on your, shoot on your property? Cause you have these beautiful rock formations and we're doing this bike film and grant, this is just like four guys packed into a minivan, like with like one bike hanging off the back. And <laughs> it's just, and I'm on the phone with him like yeah we're doing this production and trying to convince him and and he he's like yeah yeah we could probably figure something out we just had like Mission Impossible here so they were filming and you know like what's your location like what are you looking at for like your location budget because they were on like three four thousand a day and I was like whoa 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 I was like okay <laughs> let me give you a sense of scale here I'm like there's four guys in the minivan uh we're pretty stinky We've been here. We've been doing this for like two weeks already. We just drove past, saw saw your property, and it looks incredible. I can offer you like a hundred bucks a day, and he's like, "Um, I don't know if that's really." I'm like, "We also have a photographer though." He's like, "I could use some new pictures for my wall because we're doing we are doing a new lodge." 
And I was like, no way. I was like, Bruno? He's like, oh yeah. He's like, I'm like, okay, how about this? We take some pictures of the rocks for you in your new lodge and we'll send those over and you let us like have kind of free reign on the property. He's like, he's like, sure, it works for me. And I was like, no way. And it was like basically like a handshake. <laughs> Shook on it. He he went to his place, handed us the key. We went up and filmed for three, four days and that's ridiculous. And, so you got to shoot the same place as Mission Impossible and they didn't even know the deal. If they just took some pictures, they could have got it for half the price. Yeah, not even half the price. It was like no price. No price. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Bruno Bruno came through on that one. That was sweet. So yeah, that's awesome. yeah, we, yeah. So there's a there's a lot of stuff like that. And then even, you know, I've I've done I've done four previous trips in New Zealand before that. So I had some really good friends down there and they were some of them just so happened to be heli mechanics. So we got some heli time and it's like every all the pieces just kind of fall into place it's like you you know it's yeah. it's pretty amazing it's just nice to that's really cool it was good yeah so anyway there's a yeah that that kind of kicked things off and then we for me it kind of established like what my new direction was or what my direction was moving forward yeah so so the other one i wanted to ask you about i think it's one of your more recent ones was the siblings movie so totally. I just watched that one too. That was also really cool. I didn't realize yeah, yeah. I'd already seen that one before and it was like on my watch history and I loved it before. <laughs> and I'm like, holy moly, I'm gonna interview the guy that just made this movie that I always really liked. So yeah, yeah. got any good stories about that one? Well, I mean, that one's like, those were kind of, you know, I, I got super interested in the narratives. Like I was just super interested yeah. in film narrative. I was like, cool, you can tell stories. And that was always my thing. You know, you watch enough Indiana Jones films and you're like, oh, I definitely want to do that. Like, <laughs> obviously, because it's super. Yeah. And uh, um, growing up, I'd always loved The Goonies. Like, The Goonies was like my favorite movie. My buddy here, Scotty at Juicy, uh, him and I kind of like, Dimebeck was like, came to us and they were like, hey, we actually maybe we sold them on it i think i i think i sold them on it i was like hey you guys should really do a brand piece and they're like yeah okay what do you want to do and i was like oh we have this idea uh that has to do with like basically taking um your earliest bikes and then working all the way through but instead of telling like a product story we told a human story and with the product in it which, yeah exactly and so yeah. put the put the product in the background and use like the human story to be the appealing factor rather than yeah you know, forcing products on people that then it feels like you're interrupting their day. It feels like, yeah. feels like a commercial more than a feels like film. Yeah, very much so. So oh, you guys did a great um, job of that. Cause when I was watching like the bikes, I, they always caught my interest in the background cause they obviously make beautiful bikes. Can't yeah. deny that. But then there's also just, you're focusing on the story, but the whole time you get to see these great machines in the background. Yeah. And just like the more you can appeal to, you know, human behavior, the better. And it's yeah. like realistically, if you, if you can, if you can tell a human story in a captivating way, and also at the same time, you know, meet the needs of the brand that you're working for, then you're kind of like, you're definitely doing good things. Like in yeah. terms of, it's like you're checking most of the boxes, which is great, but it also allows you to really, allowed us to kind of, you know, flex our freedom a bit and creativity and let us, you know, dive into these other worlds, which just so happen to be, you know, mainly in the eighties. Because 80s were sweet, but uh, <laughs> um, but yeah, the the precursor to siblings was actually Skidsville, which is another one we did yep. where we we took like a kind of an yeah it was like a slow progression of um, getting older in age, and yep. then same thing. But it's kind of somewhat similar to siblings in that sense, but yeah, it was it was fun from a filmmaking standpoint because we got to dive into not just 
like the film work, but also, you know, you went out and scouted like where you want to film it, what sets fit, what era. We went out to thrift stores and bought like, God knows how much clothing. Resem- resemble yeah. like the nineties and the eighties that you had on there for sure. Oh, totally. Like had full like wardrobe and the whole bit. Yeah. And, like would uh, have the kids come in and like get dressed up and make sure it was like the right fit, make sure it was the right look. And uh, also rented cars, would go knock on people's door. Like I would go <laughs> knock on a couple like people's door and be like, hey, you got a sweet car. Like, can we borrow it? Like. I know this is super random, but is there any <laughs> chance to, like, here's my details and all this stuff. You have like this fantastic car and we were doing this little film shoot. So I was like, here's a hundred bucks kind of thing. And yeah, they were stoked. Like everybody, it just, those kind of things click, you know? Yeah. Like, any true car guy will put his car on a film just for the heck of it. But if you're getting paid for it too, he's definitely going to be oh, all man. for that. Yeah. There's, there's this one guy, he had this uh, huge station wagon, 1977 um, country squire. no, yeah anyway it was it was was this huge boat of a thing yeah and uh like the old station wagons like had wood paneling down the side so it was it it was super fun to be just like you know you drive past something like that i would stop just go knock on his door be like hey we're doing this film he's like oh yeah sweet it's like when you need it i'm like oh next week he's like cool here's the keys take when you need it (laughs) you're like whoa this is such a trip um but yeah that that kind of stuff was cool because it was kind of this uh it was a much you know, you're telling, you're telling actually like a proper story, not a fabricated one. So, yeah. I mean, essentially it is a fabricated one, but you want to do justice because you are talking to siblings and, you know, you're talking to you know, growing older and that kind of stuff in that relationship. So yeah, you know, you're writing full storyboards for it, doing animatics, doing like totally having the whole thing laid out and basically know what you want the sh- shots to look like. And the whole thing is almost written out on paper before it's even going into production. Yeah, for sure. So, so yeah, it was good. It's like, once again, it's just like a slow, it's like this progression of filmmaking, you know, you start just by picking up a camera and then slowly kind of gains and gains and gains momentum. And yeah, I don't know. And then once again, like that one has, it's done super well, but it's also gotten us a lot of like um, non-endemic and outside interest from agencies and companies and director, like are you necessarily like outdoor biking or anything like that just in general filmmaking companies yeah totally like in terms of like in the outdoor space for sure but also you know we're being asked to pitch on like airplane commercials and um, that kind of stuff so you're getting approached to because of the work we've done with kids people are like oh this space is you know you guys have a really strong holding you have like a strong voice in this right now so it's allowed us to kind of expand beyond just our, you know, perceived parameters. Cool. And at the same time, cool. yeah. And it's even just, even for me working with my sponsors now, it's really gotten to the point where we're just kind of double-edged sword. People always come to you looking for ideas. It's like, I guess, brand or whatever I've created for myself. But for the most part, it's definitely, um, yeah. Now it's, it's like if somebody, like one of my sponsors needs a project, it's like, hey, we're like looking to do something around this what are your ideas? What would you do? How would you put it together? I was like, okay, it's like, cool. <laughs> but, um, which is, which is good. Um, and also can be somewhat exhausting at times. Yeah, for sure. It's, it's just the way it goes. But, uh, and the sibling ones are cool. Like, I mean, the dream rides were quite the opposite. You're kind of, that one was like, you're constantly just, you know, patching this boat that wants yeah. to sink. You definitely have a rough understanding what's in your head, but it, yeah. it's, there's, location changes and you're going to these really exotic places and then you have like 
you know, contingency plans and like escape routes and all these like different things that people don't really see that you have to, you have to prep and take care of. Uh, but on the siblings and the skidsbills and like those kind of ones, it's a little bit more of a, definitely more of a production and siblings is fun because almost everybody was brother and sister on that. Yeah. That's cool. Like, you got like, actual siblings to be in the movie. Yeah. That's yeah. nice. Yeah. It was, uh, it was good. And it, it, honestly, you just create the scene and you almost let them interact as they would. Yeah. They're still just, just being like, themselves for the most part. It was pretty, it was pretty awesome. It was a fun one for sure. Uh, so you're got your girlfriend and your kid now. How old yes. is your daughter? Uh, my daughter is approaching two and a half. Oh yeah. Yeah. Still fairly new. Yes. Yes. But she's a, she's a little wild child. It's going to be awesome. Yeah. Oh, I was just going to say she's, she's a gem, man. She's a little yeah. beauty. It's amazing. <laughs> Do you ever want her to kind of follow behind you and doing the outdoor like pro sports or kind of the filmmaking side? Eh, I mean, I'm kind of just like, I don't know. They're just, they're their own, they're their own little beans and they're on their own little journey. You're just there yeah. to help them kind of help them along the way. She'll do whatever she wants to do. And I mean, you just try to make sure that things are set up so that she is, you know, able to do as many things as she can. Yeah. And yeah, I mean, my, my girlfriend is like, you know, her and I have exactly the same outlook. So we just yeah. try to make sure that Illy or Illyra experiences, I'm just going to call her Illy B because that's what everybody calls her. My girlfriend's, uh, you know, when she was in the womb, you have this like big baby bump and then Illy was born and we're like, oh, what do you like? What do you need for a middle? What do you guys want for a middle name? We just kind of both looked at each other we're like button. We're like, sure. <laughs> so her middle name's button. We just call her Illy B for yeah. short. Yeah. Anyway, we try to give her as many experiences as possible. So she travels with us pretty much everywhere, you know, go over to Europe and my girlfriend's parents, she, she's from England. So she goes over there, obviously Illy goes with her, you know, things like New Zealand and you just try to give them, you know, as much experiences experience as possible. Yeah. yeah. That's cool. So how did you end up meeting your girlfriend then? We met down in New Zealand on my first trip down there uh, in 2013, question mark. Oh, yeah. Yeah, sometime around there. I should probably know that. Uh, jumping off waterfalls of all things. Yeah, yeah, that's cool. It was a had a buddy of mine. Need a, he's like, hey, I need a ride to like because it was one of our friends' birthdays, and we we're going canyoning, which is basically like float down a river and jump off waterfalls and kind of yeah. slowly work your way down to to the lake. And he's like, can you give uh, myself and like my friend Trahan a ride? And I was like, oh yeah, sure. And I like picked them up and like she got in the car and I was like, yeah, I was like, whoa, it's <laughs> like, what a babe. And then from that, it was pretty much, I was like, Hey, how's it going? What's up? What's up? And yeah, just basically being a giant goof and, and all kind of worked out. And then, yeah, we just never looked back. Yeah. That's that was cool. it. Yeah, man. It was sweet. So yeah. And, but now we all live in Canada and yeah, this is home. Yeah. home. yeah. And biking. I don't know. It's just kind of, I think I grabbed to a, towards a style more than i did like a certain individual but obviously yeah. you had like the guys like wade simmons and i don't know it's cool that your older brother was kind of the one that you were always falling behind oh yeah yeah he was he was he was gold yeah he was always faster than me and he was always better and kind of pushed me as like the you know the sibling rivalry but yeah and then i don't know i think it's just pretty classic that just the sibling thing even my, even today like my brother and i we battle like if we go for a bike ride it's like we're yeah. battling the whole way <laughs> and it's like I, it's, i'm not like that with anybody else it's like this total street cred thing between the two of us <laughs> yeah. and we will go so hard yeah that's pretty much me in a nutshell i mean don't 
trying to think too much into the past. It's like, yeah. kind of like looking forward, right? Well, the one thing I want to bring up is I was watching your uh, Dirt Magazine video. Yeah. Do you remember shooting that one? Because that's a pretty, I like that video. It's a pretty cool video. You get to see your trial and error going down a few ramps and around a few slides. And Yeah, of... I mean, that one, I haven't, I remember filming that. It was pretty fun. I remember Jasper and Waze, because Waze, he was doing a project on like the kind of characters within man biking that and kind of to give a behind the scenes look into what makes them tick and also make the whole thing work like whether it be a pro yeah. career or anything like that to be fair the only thing i remember from that is at the end i said something along the lines like the best is yet to come and that kind of like pertained to this project that i filmed and never released oh yeah it's a it's something that i spent two months building yeah um it was like this this idea that i had in my head for ages and uh, I filmed it, brought in, filmed it twice actually, and just chose never to release it just on the basis of it wasn't captured the way I had visioned in my head. And that's like my fault because it was basically like, it was my project, so I was directing it. And it was when I was younger. Yeah. And so I chose never to release it just because I felt like it didn't meet the standard that I wanted it to reach. Yeah. Um, and yeah, and I think I might release it soon because cool. it's been it's been oh god it's been ages it's been like seven years <laughs> i've got it on the hard drive here like because it's been shot but i kind of I, I had a real quick look through it at the beginning of the year when kind of things were really slow during covid and yeah. i found it i found it like you know tagged up in my in my hard hard drive storage and i was like oh i was like so i plugged it in and kind of started sorting through and i was like man it's it's this crazy thing and i mean so what it is is it's a trail that opens as you ride it and you're yeah. setting off you're setting off triggers. It's like a Rube Goldberg machine, but the trail's a Rube Goldberg machine. Oh, yeah, that's and cool. so you have uh, basically it's like you're, you're riding down. It's like an Indiana Jones thing. It was uh, I don't even know how to explain it. But basically, it's like the long the long and short of it is is uh, it's this giant mechanized trail where once you set it in motion, certain things have to happen for the trail to open up, yeah. and that's to the scale of like. You have like pivoting things that are dropping logs out of trees that are setting off cable cars that are knocking over stumps that are clearing the way for like jumps. Like yeah. I had this one, this one tree, like big, big stump and the jump, like the idea is to jump over this like 15 foot stump and there is this 10 foot plus section on top of that 15 foot stump that has to get taken out by a battering ram right before you get over it and you have yeah. to it gets set in motion before so yeah it's, it's crazy it's like you go in there and then i draped it all in vines and it looked like something that had been there for like 100 years yeah. and painted everything and so everything put spikes in the ground and and you actually filmed it like you actually did the course yeah yeah i did, did it all I did it. yep yeah and no resetups for that big of a it, course it was it was pretty crazy like to reset it took a while because you have to pull back the battering ram to reset the stump you have to yeah you know, you have to make sure everything's triggered and ready to go. And so every time you set it off, it was just like, it was definitely, definitely some trial <laughs> and error in there for sure. Yeah. Like, you know, things were breaking and then you'd have to fix them, but it was this really wild thing. And I, I got to put it out because I still haven't, it was, it was something I was really passionate about and something that I was like, oh, this would be really cool. And then I just took two months and built this thing and, and that no one's ever seen. Yeah, so, we'd love to see. That'd be super cool to see. Yeah. Yeah, it'd be fun because it's kind of just one of those, I might just release it with on its own and then do a little thing after the fact on just how it came together and how, yeah. you know, the whole, all the behind the scenes on that one. Yeah. Just kind of go back to the forest. Cause some of the stuff is still there. Like the, the, 
log that I put in the ground and all this stuff and some of the spikes and stuff are all still there. And so I just, <laughs> just uh, in case someone else finds yeah, it by yeah. accident. Yeah, exactly. But um, just because that part of that too is the reason I didn't release it is just like for my own, cause I'm like hyper less so now, but like still quite anxious and still like I, in terms of like, if something's not perfect and too much of a perfectionist in a lot of ways, if something's not perfect, then I like, I won't release it or I felt like it was, so much a part of me the biggest yeah. critic is you yourself on your own work for sure oh totally yeah yeah i mean it's pretty nuts like even like my girlfriend kind of she called me out the other day because there's something that i just that i re- recently finished a it's like every time somebody brings up something and you're like oh yeah dream ride or you know siblings or whatever i'm like oh yeah because all i can see is the stuff that's wrong in it yeah the stuff that we could have done better and i'm like yeah, yeah. it's like whatever you know like you know these things are like going on and traveling around the world and doing way bigger things and you could have ever expected them to but all you can see is the issues yeah so it's like, yeah it's, it's not a great headspace to be in so i'm trying yeah. to work on that you know yeah yeah no, it takes us time for sure everyone oh yeah literally everyone i know that's a creator always has that trouble oh totally man that's kind of the nature of the beast there what's the story you tell people that they're tired of hearing like see this is a good one to ask my buddies because like i usually on shoots especially like when I'm wearing, cause I'm wearing so many hats. I'm just like a stress case. I'm not like a total <laughs> stress case, but I'm like usually so like in the zone that. Not noticing anything else. I'm not noticing anything. It's brutal. <laughs> like you're kind of like, you're so locked in and kind of wonder at the end of it. You're like, why? It's like, what? Just, just enjoy yourself every now and then. I'm getting better at that too. But definitely early days I was like, so like, just like, okay, what are we doing next? What are you doing next? Like constantly just, I don't know. Contin- contingency plan. It's funny. Like, there's been so many situations over the course of just being outside because like the majority of like my uh, say just a wife in general has been trying to get to really strange like off yeah. the beaten path places and so you know there's everything from you know being up in the purcells and like sleeping on like sleeping on on a high alpine ridges with no protection at all like uh and having like thunderstorms roll in or (laughs) being uh you know sleeping on white island like we spent three two nights and three days there and people hadn't done that in like 60 years or something and you're sleeping behind you know given the eruption and the event that happened there it's like we're sleeping behind these decrepit remains of an old sulfur mine that was taken out by a an eruption like a freak eruption and 11 out of the or 10 out of the 11 people passed away in that and the one guy that survived like everybody would happen because I was in like the early 1900s kind of thing and you go to these places with your friends and I mean a lot of the time you have your like funny moments because you're all you're in the moment for sure but a lot of the time it's just making sure everyone's good I mean it's a great time when you're (laughs) when you're in it but you're also like have this you're hyper aware because at the end of the day a lot of the time you're like well the only reason these people are here is because I've dragged them into this so let's make sure nothing happens kind of thing (laughs) we were filming a couple years ago at Joss this uh this mountain outside revelstoke and takes about four hours to hike into and it's this beautiful alpine landscape with like snow and you have these incredible views it's just bonkers but it's got a fire tower at the top and you can sleep in the fire tower and the fire tower is built in like 1912 so it's this old stone box basically it's it's like a it's got windows and everything but they're small and we get in there we're setting up for the night and you know we got all our sleeping bags and stuff and we're kind of just sleeping on the floor and making some dinner and steam and stuff. And all of a sudden we see this like thing like pop up outside the window and we're like, like, what's that? 
is that a pack rat? I'm like, oh, it's totally a pack rat. And he's on the outside of the window and he's doing his thing. He's dancing along the window line, like on the windowsill. And we're like, look at that little guy. And then um, like, we're all watching this thing. And then out of nowhere, it just walks through the friggin' window. And it like totally just walks straight through the window. And we're like, we all jump back. Like everyone jumped back. We're like, what the hell? And you know, it takes like a hot second for it to click that there is no window there. Like it's been just totally cut out clean window. <laughs> so there's no broken glass or anything, but yeah. it looked so solid. And because the place is so it's like stone and cement and it's cold, it, we didn't notice that like it wasn't drafty at all. And it just, it just appeared that this, you know, pack rat walked right through the window. I mean, that could have been a total had to be there moment, but God, it was, the reaction was just gold because all of us were like fully just this Houdini pack rat. Uh, we named him Dean Martin, you know, as, yeah. as you do. And he, you know, he hung out with us for a couple of days. He was a good dude. Yeah. Good roommate. Pretty decent. Didn't, Didn't eat all the food. food. Yeah, yeah exactly. Um, sweet. No, it was great having you on here, Mike. Thanks there for being go. the first ever guest on Peaks and Pines. All right, man. What's Hopefully we can have you on here again one day and I'll keep everyone posted on any new releases. Do you have anything that's coming out in the next little bit, maybe? So you want to put? Uh, we just... Uh, we had like spirit of adventure come out which is a kind of gravel bike video which is you know looks like a road bike a little bit fatter tires meant yeah. for gravel um so that's called spirit of adventure you can find that on diamond there's another project for diamondback and that's more of just you know articulating the inner voice the spirit of adventure and goes yeah. to a lot of crazy landscapes some of them if uh, people know dream ride will recognize them from dream ride they kind yeah. of revisited a couple spots uh and then just finished a shoot with a uh, triathlete named rachel mcbride and that one should be pretty cool too that should be coming Sweet. out in october so what uh give the people your social media handles and so they know where to find you yeah instagram mike j hopkins and well, i don't know facebook's facebook right yeah. Kind of, yeah. <laughs> no, I got an athlete page there, but I don't know if people even do Facebook anymore. Who knows? <laughs> yeah. Um, mainly just Instagram and yeah, I mean Juicy Studios is the website and check it out. Yeah. Sounds good. Know. Well sweet. Thanks, Mike. That's pretty much it. We'll talk to you later. All right, buddy. Sweet. Peace. <laughs> so that was actually a pretty awesome interview. Yeah, that was great. It was an awesome time having Mike on. Told us some pretty great stories about his life. He has a lot of new stuff coming out here pretty soon. He's already released a few more videos on his social media. You can check him out. But yeah, let's get into the news part of this. Whistler Blackcomb has released that they are uh, removing the Horseman T-Bar. So for most people that have been to Whistler, which is a lot of people because it's a world famous resort, they, uh, the Horseman T-Bar is kind of a really famous spot. It goes on the Horseman Glacier. It's been there for over 30 years. And a lot of people have ridden it just since they've announced that it won't be going back. There's been a lot of uh, athletes kind of mourning over it and a lot of filmmakers that produced a lot of films there. They're all just really sad to see this place go. But I mean, you can only control so much. You can't control a glacier receding. It's happening everywhere, but sad to see that happen. Yeah, sad to lose a bit of a iconic landmark, if you will. Exactly. Yeah, landmark. Uh, but I know that you had some pretty cool news. Yeah, actually, I... Uh... It was, it was a few months back, actually, about five months back, so a little while ago. But uh, during quarantine, there was a young Brazilian skateboarder uh, that actually completed or landed the first 1080 on a vert ramp. So uh, that's actually pretty huge. That's the three full rotations. 
uh, in the air, landing it beautifully. Uh, his name is Guy Curry. Uh, so this kid actually already has a few records, pretty amazing. Uh, he is the youngest person to ever land a 900 at the age of eight. So once again, Holy moly. Uh, that was Tony Hawk's signature move. And uh, this kid at eight years old landed it. Uh, he is also has two Guinness World Records. One is for landing that 1080 jump, being the first person to land a 1080 jump on a vertical ramp, as well as being the youngest X Games athlete at the age of t- 10 years and seven months. So this kid is... Uh, That's ridiculous. Yeah, definitely expecting to see some amazing things out of him. Especially and how old is he now? He's 11 years old. So only going to get better. Yeah, as the years go by, that's... This kid's going to transform skateboarding if he keeps up the pace he's going at. Definitely. So that's kind of cool. I thought I'd share that if anyone hasn't heard of him before. Yeah, his name is Guy Curry. Yeah, that's ridiculous. I'm sure a lot of people already know all about him. He has been in the X Games. Looking forward to seeing him in the next X Games. But if you haven't, if you haven't heard of him or seen him, definitely look into him. That's kind of wraps it up for our first episode here at Peaks and Pines. Uh, You can find us on Twitter at peaks underscore and underscore pines. And on Instagram, you can look us up under broken underscore north. That's the company that's supporting our podcast. They'll be releasing uh, updates on when we release our episodes and also make some behind the scenes footage. But yeah, give them a follow. Uh, You can find us on all your major podcast providers, Spotify, Apple Music, anywhere you get your podcast from. Uh, Leave us... Uh, reviews on Apple Music. It helps us get higher up on the charts. And we are a new podcast, so you know we will respond to all your comments and reviews. And yeah, we hope to hear from all of you. Tell us how we did. We're only looking to improve. We know it's not perfect. We're still learning. So yeah, hopefully you enjoyed the podcast and look forward to bringing you more. See you later. Peace.